Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to an exclusive episode of Mind Love. Today's episode is all about how to use your thoughts so you're not used by them. What we're not aware of, we can have no idea how it's affecting us. Because we've let the mind run wild for so long, we have no control over what we think. And what we can't stay focused on, we can't manifest, including our own happiness And not only that, we can't take our focus off because we've never learned how to take our focus off, which is simply by deleting it, things that are negative. But it's as simple as delete and getting things in the bud and not letting them grow. Now, feelings are different. Feelings are thoughts that have hardwired and are much deeper, and that requires a different approach. But everything starts with thoughts. How we describe the world is how we experience it. When I first started to learn how powerful my mind is, I remember being pretty blown away. My whole life, things would happen, and I'd have thoughts about those things or myself. I'd believe my thoughts because why not? They're loud and they sound pretty believable. I'd feel some kind of emotion about it, often negative, and my identity would shift. So as life was happening, I was just building up beliefs about who I was and what I was capable of and what was possible for me. With this way of thinking, life was always happening to me. I didn't really have any power in it. My whole identity was being built by outside circumstances, which isn't good, especially when really hard things start to happen. When I was raped, I believed I wasn't safe in my body. When I was cheated on, I believed I wasn't worthy of love. When my dad died and I missed being there, I believed I wasn't a good daughter. All these beliefs affected me in all the ways, how I viewed the world, how I approached life, what I was willing to do or not do. And I started to attract people and situations that confirmed my self-image and my life reflected my beliefs. So when I started to understand that I had more power than I thought I did, it felt like a miracle. With simple shifts, almost instantly, my reality began to change. I didn't always have to spiral down a rabbit hole when something happened. I could choose to just let it go or focus on something else. Not everything other people did or said felt like it was always about me anymore. I could see that we're all just dealing with our own stuff and sometimes it comes out in different ways. It felt really freeing. So I went deeper and deeper into all things self-growth and soon it started to feel kind of complicated. There are just so many ways to look at things, sometimes contradictory. And no matter how deep I went in growth, there were so many of my own shadows to uncover. Really though, like endless shadows. Sometimes even now I feel like I'm just playing whack-a-mole with my own demons. I beat one down and another one pops up. The more I'd read, the more I'd find contradictory information. Like one guru says that fear is the opposite of love. Another says fear is just something to work through. One book says ego is the enemy, and another says ego should be loved and embraced. What I found, though, is that these aren't lies, or they're not even wrong. I found that there are all sorts of ways to look at things, and they've each helped me at different times. Some things resonate, others don't. And self-growth isn't about finding the right tools. It's about finding the right tools that work for you right now. And those might change as you change, or they might not. And whenever I start to feel like I'm making things more complicated than they need to be, I get back to the basics. I am not my thoughts. My thoughts are habits. What I give energy to is what will grow. I always have the power to change my perspective. And a simple shift in perspective has the power to change my whole reality. These are simple, but they're powerful truths. And I need to keep them simple because complicated doesn't really work when I'm overwhelmed. And because of everything going on in the world, 
a lot of us are living in fight or flight. Our brains are in this sort of state of mild crisis. And in that state, we can't really reason things out on a deep level. So we need to keep things simple. That's why simple is sometimes the most powerful. We need to talk to ourselves like we talk to children because sometimes that's really all we can handle. So I come back to these basics all the time because they're the building blocks for everything else. And the more ways that I hear these basics taught, the more they become hardwired into my belief system. So today we're simplifying some of the most powerful mindset tools. And our guest is Baron Stefan. And oh man, you guys, this interview got me all sorts of emotional. My little prego hormones just couldn't deal. His story is so moving. He lost his wife unexpectedly. And at the time, he was already really deep into a spiritual practice. So the way he handled the days after her death is just inspiring in itself. Well, he also teaches mindset tools to children. So he can tell you firsthand how simplifying universal truths is so helpful in a time of crisis. And learning the stuff for you parents out there can also be really helpful. Even if you think you know the basics, this is worth a listen because just the way Baron speaks brings a fresh perspective to everything you think you know. So three key things we will learn are how to change your mindset about something while still honoring your emotions how to reverse hardwired patterns of negative thinking, and simple tools for creating a beneficial mindset that even a child can learn. And now let's welcome Baron Stefan to the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here, Melissa. So I'm excited for this interview. <laughs> I was actually preparing for it and I started to cry. I've got all these pregnancy hormones going on and I just oh, like, I just broke down. I was like, I was like chapter one of your book. And I was all of a sudden I was like, <laughs> my husband's like, are you okay? Don't you have an interview soon? So, uh, so tell us a little bit about your story. I know it's so deep. What have you gone through and, and why did you decide to bring this book to the world? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think it's important for your listeners to know that it's the, it's a true story. But it's the true story of the 13 days uh, following my wife's fatal automobile accident. And it's a moment-by-moment -moment chronicle, beginning with the officer's words, she is deceased. And how those 13 days were unlike anything I could have possibly imagined or expected. The agony and the beauty. And it was alternating as if a child were playing with a light switch from intense pain to ecstatic love and to be completely forthright it was the love and gratitude that had the upper hand i i didn't want to write this <laughs> but i was asked by friends to try so that they could understand how i was able to meet this in the way i did and the more the more i wrote the more my love and gratitude for shauna and my teachers, um, it became the fuel to try and understand how even a tragedy can lead to a greater understanding of myself and of my purpose for being alive, and ultimately how to use that experience to benefit others, to benefit humanity. As I was going through some of your story, I think what hit me so much is it, it reminds me of my own marriage. And as I shared, I'm pregnant right now. And it's just interesting because I used to live kind of recklessly. I went through a lot in my 20s. And it's not like I was trying to leave the world or anything. I just, that's just how I approached life. And I noticed after I got married, all of a sudden getting on a plane, I would have a little extra feeling, like I hope nothing goes wrong, which I had never really had before. And now carrying a child, there was mm. something about hearing your story that I could just step into your shoes for a second and just wonder what that'd be like. And for me, my husband and I share the spiritual connection as well. We're both on a, a growth journey and learning about ourselves, self-exploration, which of course helps us deepen our relationship. And that's a lot of how your relationship was with your wife too, right? Absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons we came together later in life. You know, as I say in the book, I was 45 and never married when I met Shauna and she was just coming out of uh, her one and only marriage divorce. So I think 
No, Shauna says, you know, you know when you've met the love of your life. And when you haven't, if, if we teach ourselves how to listen deeply, we know not to settle. We know better than that. You talk about these 13 days following that moment that you first heard the words that she was deceased. And I'm curious, why 13 days? Mm-hmm. Was, was that your focus? Because, I mean, for me, I feel like it's probably still something that you're dealing with. So what was it about that time frame? Well, you know, when I started to write the book, as I said, I didn't want to. And so I just started writing to see how it would be. And as I wrote over that course of a year and a half that it took me to write it, what I got was that ultimately keeping it to those 13 days was perfect because of how those 13 days came up, hence your question. So I have been going to my ashram where, um, if your listeners don't know from my bio, um, I've been on the spiritual path of Siddha Yoga for many, many years, for 40 years basically, and 25 years in a daily way. And so most summers I would go to the ashram and, and offer service there. And my service was, you know, serving as a teacher for children as their parents came to practice meditation and all those things. But when I was there this last summer, about a month or two before Shauna's sudden death, I met with a woman in the ashram who had been there many years, and I knew she had a lot of experience with helping people know how to navigate um, and send blessings when someone we love dies. And I approached her because my mom at that time was approaching a certain age, so I thought it's better to be prepared. And in that conversation, she told me about the idea of the 13 days. And it's it's a concept that comes from the East, where you mourn for that period of time. And on the 13th day, there's a celebration of that life. And you're thanking that person and releasing her from anything that would hold her to this physical world. We are sending her into the light, is what I told everyone. When you say releasing from anything that would hold her in this physical world, what do you mean by that? What types of things do people tend to do that do hold people into the physical world? So in the book, there's two pivotal conversations with one of the monks in City Yoga that I've known for many, many years. And he was the first person I called on the second day after Shauna's death. He was the only one I could imagine talking to. And he reminded me of the 13 days. And that it was that conversation with him that really put everything into this, almost this container that was strong enough to hold the chaotic emotions I was going through. And what that did was having the 13 days and the understanding that there are things that hold people who die to the physical world that, you know, basically my understanding is this, that when we die, we want to make sure the people we love are going to be okay without us. And so oftentimes, if there is not the releasing, the soul may choose to stay here a little bit longer to make sure you're all right. And the purpose of the 13th day is, you know, I use those 12 days to talk to her in front of my altar and and thank her and tell her how much I loved her. And that was crucial for me to have that um, conversation with her. And then on the 13th day, to, to release her into the light, to let her know I was going to be okay and that our love was eternal, and that I would see her in that light, and that she should let herself go. All of that was extraordinarily cathartic. And whether it's true in the spirit world as well, well, I hope so. As somebody who has such a deep spiritual connection, I know for me, the deeper my spiritual practice goes, the more I am aware of just the subtle energies around me or the simple shifts when I am trying to connect with my dad or other people that have passed. And so I'm wondering for you, when you were connecting and then releasing, what were you experiencing? Was there anything that made you feel as though what was happening was true? Oh, I mean, yeah, that's, and that's another reason why I wrote the book was the experience I were, I was having over those 13 days. And as you accurately stated, you know, in the three years since her death as well, were so hyper real, like ultra real compared to even us talking on the phone right now, right? You and I wouldn't doubt the fact that this is actually happening. But the love and the gratitude and the depth of understanding of things that I'd only glimpsed before were so vivid and so clear. 
that one would think there's a choice, right, that you could choose, is that real or not? But it was obvious to me, this is more real than even talking to you this interview right now. There was a part of your book where you had talked about how you were really just focusing your intention on Shauna and the love and the gratitude became so strong that you weren't able to distinguish them, the grief and the love from each other anymore. And I'm so curious about that because I know, I mean, when I lost my dad, that was one of the hardest things I'd gone through at that time. And I was young and I didn't have much of a spiritual practice at all. So my experience was so different that I was just overwhelmed with the grief or trying to escape the grief. And so I know a lot of other people out there that have lost someone have a hard time coming out of just the negative part of it or, or the part that hurts so much. So can you describe what it was that was happening there to kind of explain to listeners what I mean, how they can kind of reach that point, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it, it was as confusing to me as it may be to some of your listeners that that could be true, even hours after Shauna was pronounced dead in the car accident, and even days later, that, that experiences of such beauty like extraordinary beauty and love could be right side by side with grief. Like it was confusing to me too. And what I finally understood was that it was in fact my, my truthfully, my spiritual practices for so long that had prepared me for that moment. And so in that moment, it, I wasn't facing that moment without protection I was facing it with a with many years of daily practice of understanding life from a different perspective. One of the reasons Sean and I fell in love is because we both had this perspective of, you know, we want to trust everything about life, not just the things that go good for us or feel good, which is easy and deceptive, but also those things that are out of the blue and may even seem abhorrent because that we both loved that possibility of truth. And with each other, we had the partner who was willing to support our, each other in those moments. And so those 12 years with Shauna, our marriage and all of that was, was almost a preparation for that moment when the officer said she is deceased, along with all of my spiritual practices. So in that moment, and I describe it in the book, really like sitting in the car. So for your reader, or your listeners who haven't or won't have read the book. Shauna was um, in Colorado, and I was in our home in um, Vashon Island. I, I wasn't in our home. I was actually taking a, my yoga's intensive, which they do once a year in um, in Seattle. And so on the at the end of the day, with one session left to go in the intensive, I saw I noticed a visual voicemail from an officer on Vashon on my phone, and I thought. That's odd. I never get called by police. And so I went out to the car and sat down and, and prepared myself. And I called him and he asked me all of these random questions, as I say in the book. And ultimately, it was so disorienting and, and confronting to have him ask random questions that ultimately seemed to maybe be about my wife, asking me, like, what's the make of my car? What's the license plate? Um where is my wife now? And so I told him, well, she's in Colorado now working with the National Natural Hazards um, Organization that, that works for the U.S. government, as she had also for 911. And by the end, he said, okay, he found out where I was. And he said, okay, I'm going to meet you back at your house tonight. And I said, no, if this has something to do with my wife, you need to tell me right now, officer. And he then just was super blunt. He said, yes. Your wife was killed in a car accident this morning. She is deceased. And in that moment, Melissa, I swear, my mind was completely blank. It was, it was so still. And as I describe it in the book, there were no thoughts for so long. And I have no way of knowing for how long I sat there like that before I even ultimately asked him, are you sure? Or I even, I didn't even say it. I heard someone say it and it was me. Are you sure? And he said, yes, yeah, she is deceased. 
But that moment of blankness, what I realized in writing the book was what I prepared for in meditation for so many years every day, meditating each morning for an hour. Because that's what meditation is. It's complete stillness. It's stilling the thought flow and just being with the awareness that's there. And that's exactly what I had in that moment of being told. And so I knew that I, I could sit in that pause and not choose to react in that moment to all those things that, you know, were coming up of just utter devastation. And in that pause, I had a choice. And in that choice, when I got out of the car a few seconds or minutes later, I don't know, I only had one intention and nothing else. And that was to send Shauna blessings as soon as possible for as long as possible. Oh, I feel like I'm going to cry again. <laughs> oh, man, doing this interview pregnant is so interesting. Um, <laughs> it's, it is interesting, though, because I, I have been focusing on that a lot through the last few months and just the difficulties of this year, uh, really being that awareness. And I think it can be a a misconception with spiritual growth that we need to control our thoughts when really it's just less less control and more allowing, allowing it to move through us. And that's not something that I did when I lost a loved one. I had a hard time not identifying with the thoughts, so I just escaped them. And in that, it manifested in my life in all of these other different ways or or bad habits or uh, self-destructive tendencies. And so it's so powerful to hear somebody that was already on this journey to be experiencing something to where they could notice in that very moment, not let the trauma take over yet, but just watch and hear your own voice, ask the question and, and sit in that pause where, I mean, maybe it was a second, maybe it was five minutes that you sat there in the pause, but at that time, it's like you transcend that illusion of time and you're just with those feelings. And I'm curious, though, where do you think the idea of sending Shauna as many blessings as possible came from? Is that part of the spiritual process of letting someone go? I don't know. You know, it's a great question. I think, you know, in my path, Siddhartha Yoga, and I want to be really, really clear that the purpose of the book is not to promote any particular spiritual path. Um, your approach will look different from mine. And in fact, Siddha Yoga is not a religion. It has people from many different religions in it. It's a philosophy. So I just want to make that clear. I think that we have to prepare for these moments. We have to prepare and understand that we're not our thoughts. And this is why I have on one of my websites, the Yoga of Mindset, um, free lessons that I wrote and recorded for three months um, that basically help someone learn, children and adults, because I was an elementary school teacher for so long, that they're not their thoughts and that they can choose to not believe any thought they want in any moment. And that is crucial. And I wrote those lessons, one, because I've been doing my own city yoga lessons just like these for 25 years every day. And two, because I just saw all the suffering in school for children and all the suicides that were happening with all the social media, the increase in it in middle school and high school. And it's simply because we believe our thoughts. And without that knowledge, of course, we self-identify with everything that goes through our minds. I try to, one thing I've shared with all of my third, fourth, and fifth grade students, and I share in the lessons, is simply that there's one basic misunderstanding. We don't, human beings don't understand the most basic way that life works. And the most basic way that life works is that Whatever thought we are thinking in each moment determines our experience in that moment until the next thought comes along. And then that thought determines our experience in that moment. We are incapable of not believing or uh, going along with our thoughts. We think we are our thoughts. And until that, until we have the experience of that not being true, we are completely we're bound to all of our thoughts and all of the, the negativities. And I've just watched, in elementary school, I watched my students suffer so much. And that's why I always tried to create a community where we were all working on something. And in this way, we would all train our own minds 
to understand what I'm saying here, which is simply, I'm responsible for my thoughts. I am my own sculpture. Because without that, the self-esteem for those third, fourth, and fifth graders would just go through terrible somersaults. And that was my way of sharing with them in a way that was appropriate, because I was a public school teacher. I used growth mindset and mindfulness as the as the prisms for that, but to help them realize that they don't have to identify with any story they're going through at any time. They don't have to believe it. I was trying to explain a specific mindfulness concepts with my nieces. And I, what I found really interesting is that we tend to overcomplicate things as adults sometimes. And there's something about teaching a child that you have to drill things down to the simplest form to the easiest way to understand. And when I was explaining certain things, I was having my own mini epiphanies of like, wow, I've been making this so much harder. And I know that especially those that finding that simplicity can be really important too, or really helpful when you're experiencing something so heavy. That's why I loved teaching elementary school for those 18 years, because it forced me to do that all day, every day. And so do you know what, let me share one way that was particularly effective so people can have this for themselves and their children out there, which was, so before each and every test, um, I would give children a little sticky note and I would have them make a T-chart on it. And on one side, they would put GM and on the other side of the T-chart, they put FM and GM stood for growth mindset thoughts. Thoughts, uh, according to Dr. Carol Dweck of Stanford University, who wrote the book Mindset, of I can do this, or I'll do this, I, I, can, I can try my hardest, and I can learn to do this. Whereas fixed mindset thoughts means I'll always be this way, um, nothing's going to change, those fixed thoughts. And so this was my way of giving them the experience of what we're talking about. And so they would write them down, and I'd give them about five minutes before each test, And during the five minutes, I would say, so, you know, this is an important test you've all been studying. And, you know, that obviously tests always induce anxiety in everyone, not not just third, fourth and fifth graders. And fortunately, because of the community we developed together in those classrooms, there was always at least one student who was willing to share not only his growth mindset thoughts, but also his fixed mindset thoughts. And so I remember particularly this day, and I did this over and over over the years, but I remember the first time I did it. And I walked over to this boy, and I I knew he was likely to let me read his thoughts on his little sticky note. And he said yes. And so I put my face to his ear and said loud enough for everyone to hear. And I said, I'm going to whisper into this boy's ear what he's written on the sticky note but loud enough for everyone to hear and so I said you're terrible at this you're going to fail you're horrible you have no chance at all and I looked around at my fifth fourth graders at that point and I said what would you say to someone who told you this and that you know for fourth graders it's super easy I would tell them to get the heck out of here they all said and I said so why would you ever let yourself tell you that And this, in my experience as a teacher of 18 years, is what children are doing all day, every day. And because we never learn this about our thoughts and how to use our thoughts instead of getting used by them, it continues into adulthood. And the result we can see in our world around us. It is so powerful. I, when I was young, I took a class. Um, My mom signed me up for something called Confident Kids, and Mm -hmm. I was raised in a religion that I no longer identify with, but this class was something that I've kept with me. I swear it gave me some foundations of things and not quite all the foundations that I plan to give my child, but Mm. it was at least teaching that these emotions that we feel are normal. And so what I think it was lacking is that I did not learn to control my thoughts But I did remove a layer of judgment from what I felt in the day-to-day. And and what's interesting, it kind of reminds me of something you said earlier about kind of that combining of the grief and the love and not even being able to differentiate them. And I think when we're going through something intense or which for everyone can be different, I mean, especially kids, an intense thing can be something that we think is very minor right now. Or if you haven't gone through something big, you know, your first breakup is feels like the end of the world. 
And so to identify that there's beauty in the depths of these emotions and Mm. to have at least a a sense of the idea that the thoughts around those emotions don't need to be real is so powerful because it's like we sit there and I mean, when life gets too mundane, I turn on the notebook and I cry my eyes out and there's something that feels good. Why is it in that moment that this sadness feels so good? But Mm -hmm. if it's happening to me, it's something I want to get away from. So when do we, when do we know whether to walk towards it or when do we want to escape from it? And how do we start to learn that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've just described the human condition. And, and in a sense, as well as the, the reason for a spiritual path is to help us be able to differentiate between those voices. Because it all seems like one voice for so long. And I just want to also clarify for everyone. First of all, <laughs> I'm not a, a representative of City Yoga, but I want to be clear that there's nothing in what I'm talking about about learning to control our thoughts. That is the reason things get so out of control is because we want to control everything. Our egos are afraid of everything. They never stop working because they perceive threats from every direction, which is completely natural. But none of us understand that we're not our ego because we all believe we are our thoughts. So it's really important to understand that it's not about controlling our thoughts. For me, I give five tools on the website, and it's all free. I just want everyone to have it. Um, And the first tools are by far the most useful, and I use them countless times every day. The first tool is simply delete. I say to myself silently, delete when any thought comes up that I don't want. I delete it. And if it comes back, I delete it again. And then the other tool is get it in the bud. Timing matters. That if I delete it soon enough, it's easy to get rid of it. But if I let that thought repeat and stay, it's much harder. And the analogy I use for my students, and I would show them pictures of a little tiny bud, and I would ask them, how easy is it going to be for you to pull that that little tiny shoot out of the ground? And they would say, super easy, Mr. Stefan. And I'd say, great. How easy would it be to pull out that bush over there? And most of them would say, yeah, well, it's a lot harder than pulling out the bud. And then how easy it would be to pull out that tree over there and then that forest over there. And it's the same thing with our thoughts. And this is my approach. This is my own personal adaptation of what I do with my mind. I simply delete the thoughts I don't want because I've learned that my mind can't differentiate between good and bad thoughts. It accepts them all. And so in that way, you know, we have to be gardeners of our mind. All our thoughts are getting planted. It's now confirmed by Western neuroscience that we hardwire thoughts by repeating those thoughts, that um, negativity bias is real, that you know, basically we have five worrisome thoughts to every one positive thought. So all of this stuff is the most basic. It's like giving someone a toolbox for life. How can we get through it without it? I don't know. The suffering is so intense that I see everywhere, Melissa. And it's in, for me, I feel that it's all, not all, that's the wrong word, but mostly self-created because we all have impressions about these things and it stirs up stuff from my past, but not yours and her past, but not his. And so it's all so subjective. And if everything is so subjective, where's that subjectivity coming from in our minds? Have you found that teaching this to children requires a different approach from teaching it to adults? And if so, what what do you do to get through to minds that are younger? You have to be it. So the number one thing I noticed when I started teaching was why do children love some teachers but don't like others or even actively dislike others? It's simply because most, many, I'll say many, many teachers say one thing but they do another. So they start the school year by saying, okay, we're, you know, let's trust each other and we're going to, you know, work together and all these things, all these positive things, right? But then literally hours later and for every minute the rest of the year, it's all about how'd you do on that test? Did you study? All these things. And so it's like we pretend that we're all about one thing, but in fact, our actions are so transparent to children. They don't learn by hearing our words as much as the osmosis of imbibing the energy we're giving off. I used to say to, to teachers that were coming up, would say, you know, I learned early on that I wasn't teaching reading, writing, and math. I was actually teaching children how to respond when you're frustrated, when you're tired, 
when you're fed up. And that's what they were learning from me. And with that came a deep, just an, a love for them of, oh my God, I would only ever want to expose them to the most uplifting and beneficial things. And so what I would say in answer to your question to parents is, don't teach it if you can't be it. Or learn it and be it first and then try to teach it. But saying it but not being it, huge mistake. You'll lose, you'll lose those children very quickly. They won't listen to you. They'll lose faith in you and they'll lose faith in themselves too. That makes a lot of sense. And I can see how even just being vulnerable in your own personal process of learning to do this could be really helpful because I'm thinking back to that. I was, I think I was 10 or something like that when I was in this confidence kids class and it was all about dealing with your emotions and, and learning to speak your emotions and using I feel statements and understanding <laughs> that it's subjective and not true for everyone. And my mom was, had volunteered to be one of the instructors in this group. So she was a different group's leader, but we were going through the material together. And so I remember though, there were times when I would basically reinforce what we had been learning with my mom when something would happen or she maybe would tell me to get over something too fast. And I'm like, you know, there's power in feeling my emotions. And there, and not only was that bonding, but it also showed me, I, it was a deeper level of my relationship with my mom because that was when I started to understand that she was human, you know, because yeah. when you're really young, you're like, that's my mom. She knows what she's talking about or she doesn't. And so at one point, I think what happens with a lot of teenagers is you start to realize, wait, my parents don't know everything they're talking about and they lose this level of respect. But instead, if you can see them on this path with you and you can share those things, it takes off the need to be perfect or fully embodied. And instead, it shows them how maybe you can adapt and respond when somebody else is helping you through it and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, what you just said is crucial for all parents, which is simply that children learn much better by seeing someone do it. And so by being vulnerable, by sharing with them the, the mistake that you made today or apologizing for, for assuming this when actually that had happened and, and, and sharing with them your reflection of how you figured that out, that is what children need and desperately want because that's their great truth. They recognize truth. They have perfect truth meters is what I used to tell myself as a teacher. Is Their truth meter is never off. And children want more than anything else to love their parents and to be loved by them. And what would engender more love and trust than what you just described? Then actively showing them when you've made mistakes, taking them into the conversation, Maybe even asking them what you could do differently next time. Let them be like, there's so many opportunities for learning how to be self-empowered together. Like it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And how wonderful that you're pregnant. I'm pretty excited about it. The, the amount of times now each day that I'm like, well, how am I going to teach my child this? Or, oh, that would be a really good way to teach my child. It's again, it's the ability to adapt my mindset to how can I drill this down to the simplest form and just in the intention that one day I'm going to teach my child who's not even born yet, this idea has been giving me a new understanding of almost every idea that I hold and give that intention to, you know? It's beautiful. I'm wondering too, I look back to a time when I was a kid and I learned the idea mind over matter. And I have a few specific memories of where I was like, wow, our mind is more powerful than what we see in front of us. And so I remember trying to train my way or believe my way out of asthma, out of, I increased my mile running time by like minutes at one point, And it really, really worked. And I'm thinking now on one hand, it's like, well, is this going to be difficult to teach a child? On the other hand, as adults, we have so many other beliefs that take up space in our brains that might contradict new material that might be more powerful in our lives that I think now we learn stuff and think, well, this, this, and this from my experience prove this not true, where we don't really have that as a child. So I'm wondering, do you find it even easier sometimes teaching these concepts to children than it is to adults? Well, definitely, because they're so much more interested in everything. They're curious. And so I compiled something like, I don't know, 50 videos that I would show the children, usually multiple times because, you know, there's the first 
learning it, and then there's the the studying it, and then there's the curiosity. And one that refers specifically to what you're saying is I would show them this video by I can't I'm trying to recall the name right now A S Science or something like that that is this great sort of not cartoon but animated characters, and basically they're teaching us that. They have these two studies, and they say, and in this one study, people practice piano for this amount of time. And in this other study, people practice piano only in their mind. And afterwards, they measured their muscles, and in the people who only did it in their mind, their muscles in their hands had grown 20%, whereas those who'd done it with their hands had grown something like 50%. So children love that kind of stuff because it's true. And my wife was a miracle in that sense. You know, Shauna had was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and had ulcerative colitis where she was losing like a pint of blood a day. And, and when she described what trying to go to the bathroom was like, she described it as glass coming through her intestines, like she was in such pain. But she had such a strong mind that she refused to ever accept the diagnosis as given to her by these scientists. And she, she overcame it all. So there is no limit to what's possible. And children, children know that. We forget it as adults because we get so distracted by other things as we, you know, get concerned with social groups and all of that, which is part of our middle brain, right? The social aspect. But children know and are excited by life because it's filled with potentiality. I want to go back to one of the tools that you mentioned about having mm. a thought and then just deciding to delete it. Mm -hmm. That sounds so simple. Why does it work and how does it work? Yeah, yeah. So how I, how I describe it to my younger students is like, you know, so most of you have phones or your parents have phones. Have you ever seen them delete a voicemail? They'd all say yes. And I'd show them on my phone. So I'm going to delete this voicemail. I don't need it. And you slide it over and you hit delete and it's gone, right? And then if it's, you're still worried about it, you could even hit the trash button and then it would really be gone. You could never get it back, right? The mind works in the same way. A thought is just a thought. And so in the same way that we obviously know that we can be taught anything, we can be taught hate or we can be taught love. We can be taught trust and we can be taught immense distrust of everything, right? All the conspiracy theorists. Because the mind is completely neutral. And so the mind has never had what I would call a gardener of the mind, someone who chose which thoughts to keep and which not. And thoughts are really, they're just things that come through. They're not even us. And that's the gift of meditation is to see that all these thoughts going by that like don't mean anything. I remember like early on in meditation when I first started having the thought out of nowhere, out of like total blankness, past the mustard. And in that moment, I realized, wait a minute. So the mind is thinking all these things, but, but I'm not involved in them. And so it really is about getting in and doing the work ourselves. It's, it's, it is about, you know, putting on the gloves and getting into the garden and getting dirty and just trying it on and trying it out. Most people aren't able to learn this stuff because they can't stay with it because the mind is so fast. So did you know that most human beings, the average human being thinks about 60,000 thoughts a day? How many thoughts can, how many thoughts can you remember from yesterday having or last Wednesday? And so the mind accepts all those thoughts. And so what we're not aware of, we can have no idea how it's affecting us. But if over time, someone tells you you're fat and ugly, as an example, over and over and over again, when you look in the mirror, and there's no one to tell that to you, what do you hear in your head? That you're fat over and over again. Yep, that I'm fat and ugly. And so literally, you are believing it. You you empower those thoughts by putting your attention on them. As I describe it in those lessons, it's it's by by thinking something, we are giving it sunlight and water. And so delete is simply refusing to give a thought sunlight and water. It's as simple as that. Just try it. And really the only way, like when I used to do workshops for this stuff, you know, I, we would go out and we'd walk through the um, playground and all the yard, you know, I'd have parents with their children and I'd have them on have them have a piece of paper on a clipboard. And I asked them to choose one thing that they wanted to focus on the entire time, like nothing else could be focused on for this 20 minute walk. And so someone might write on there, you know, I feel good or whatever they wanted, whatever they wanted to experience. And I had them put an X each time 
on one side of the T-chart that they were thinking that thought, and then an X on the other side all the times that they thought anything except that one thought. And this was simply designed to show people how powerful our thoughts are and how quickly they take us away from what we say we want, right? We want to focus on that one thought. We want to feel good. We want to, you know, be happy today. But because we've let the mind run wild for so long, we have no control over what we think. And what we can't stay focused on, we can't manifest, including our own happiness. And not only that, we can't take our focus off because we've never learned how to take our focus off, which is simply by deleting it, things that are negative. But it's as simple as delete and getting things in the bud and not letting them grow. Now, feelings are different. Feelings are thoughts that have hardwired and are much deeper, and that requires a different approach. But everything starts with thoughts. How we describe the world is how we experience it. I'm curious, as someone who has gone through something so difficult, one thing I've learned is that for a long time, in the very earlier stages of my spiritual journey, I did try to just overpower a lot of what I was going through with positivity, just replacing, replacing, replacing. And in the process, I denied a lot of my emotions and trapped them in my body. So I'm curious, where is the balance for you of allowing those, the grief or the mourning or, or whatever anyone's going through, the hard things to run through you versus giving too much energy or power to those thoughts and staying in the negativity, if that makes sense. It does. I would say there's two different ways to go today since we have, you know, we don't have three days to talk about this for three <laughs> weeks, which is more appropriate. There is the day-to-day emotions of like, am I going to get the job? Am I going to get called back? And then there's the intense emotions that you're talking about from intense grief, like when my wife was killed or when, you know, suddenly we're divorced or something. So there's a difference in emotions. So grief is a completely natural emotion and it needs to be allowed to be expressed. And in fact, that was something that I had to learn. And the monk told me something that was so important. And he didn't even tell me it on day two or day 13. He told me it like a, a month or two afterwards. And he said, you know, I had been telling him all the practices I'd been doing to help me deal with it. You know, my daily meditations, chanting, reading my lessons, all of those things. And what he said to me that day was so helpful. And I put it in the book, which is that Baron, you don't want to pole vault your feelings with your practices because we are both human and divine. And the human part needs to be felt and honored. The feelings and the thoughts are relatively real. They're temporarily real, or at least they feel that way and they have to be felt. But that doesn't mean that we aren't also always divine and completely pure as well and and have access to that as well. The one doesn't eclipse the other. They're both necessary since we're in bodies here. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and also for simplifying Mm. so many of these methods. It's not just helpful for children. I've found that going through some of this material that is also helpful for children has helped me a lot in just remembering the simplicity of the things that I can do on a day-to-day basis that bring me closer to that happiness. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you, uh, some of these free lessons that you have for children, especially since so many people are homeschooling their kids right now, where can they connect with you online? You can go to my website, baronstefan.com. Um, And there they'll find links to my other website, The Yoga of Mindset, that has those lessons for free and recordings. Um, They'll also find um, my book and interviews and also a a resource library on baronstefan.com of all the books, audio, and lessons that helped me get through those 13 days and after Shauna's death, you know, the things that that um, that I feel really helped me get through it. All of the links from this episode will be at mindlove.com slash x23. So your challenge for this week is to keep it simple. Go back to these universal truths and start to focus on your thoughts again. And like always, awareness is the first step. So notice what patterns of thinking keep coming up. Notice the little ways you talk to yourself that maybe slip by your conscious mind. Decide which thoughts and patterns are beneficial and which are limiting, and choose to delete the limiting ones as soon as possible. 
the moment you notice it comes in and you'll get faster and faster at this noticing each time you do it, just choose to delete it and replace it with something empowering. So simple, but so powerful. For those of you that have been on a spiritual growth for a long time, sometimes it can be like, yeah, 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 I already know this. But I could sit here and say, yeah, 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 I already know downward dog, but doesn't make it not a building block of my yoga practice. If I didn't come back to my mat every single day, I wouldn't really have a yoga practice. So come back to this, embrace the fundamentals. And what's really fun is gaining a deeper insight into how you view these fundamentals now compared to maybe when you first learned them. Notice how far you've come from the first time you learned about empowering thoughts compared to now. Maybe the things you're changing aren't quite as heavy as what you had to change in the beginning, or maybe they are. Truth be told, there's a reason that awareness is such a big thing. I've had to come back and be aware that, hey, I don't know if I'm aligning with all the things that I believe. How can I reset and restart? And that extra time it takes to just bring the awareness is always worth it. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. Let me know what things you're working through and maybe it'll speak to future topics of this podcast. So for those of you who are members, I'm so, so thankful to you. You're my favorites. It means so much to me that you support Mind Love and want even more content. If you're not a member of Inner Circle and you're interested in becoming a member of Inner Circle, shoot me an email at melissa at mindlove.com. It's super fun. We've been having twice a month chats, getting to know each other really well, and just having those conversations that make you feel lighter, that shift your energy through the day, that help us all to come back to the fundamentals of these growth tools rather than just doing it on our own. So again, send me an email at melissa at mindlove.com and I'll send you the info. As always, thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time.